What's up, everybody? <clears throat> Excuse me. Episode eight of Martial Media Montage. And uh, just like the previous episode, I would like to utilize the number eight for one set uh, particular game in this episode. Area 88 in Japan, also known as uh, UN Squadron in the NTSC North America region. Uh, as is tradition, I'm going to finish the Songs in the Key of Life, Stevie Wonder, side four of the double LP, right where I left off. It's about halfway done. And then the following record I'm probably going to have to uh, input into this uh, audio is Stanley Turrentine's Sugar. I think I'm just going to stick with the just jazz funk uh, soul aspect of the uh, background music, but highly, highly recommended. Yeah, Stanley Turrentine, George Benson, uh, Grover Washington Jr. I mean, George Benson's even featured on this uh, album by Stanley Turrentine. Sugar, the cover is interesting. Uh, a guy licking a foot. <laughs> Besides me, uh, yeah, I know, weird, right? Besides me talking about that particular album, uh, I would like to talk to you guys about this TV show right here. Yeah, I'm going to talk uh, Street Sharks today. And uh, as I stated, Area 88, and uh, which is an arcade game as well as it being ported to the Super Nintendo or Super Famicom. Another game, Child of Light, which was on the previous generation of consoles as well as it being on today's console now. Uh, I'm going to talk about two bands, The Offspring, and uh, I'm also going to talk about Weezer as well as I'm going to talk about uh, recent toy pickups and uh, talk about the Ninja Turtle toy uh, lineup. So let's get right to it. Here's uh, Stevie Wonder, Songs of the Key of Life, side four. Oh, yeah. All right. Street Sharks, the animated series, <clears throat> ran from 1994 to 1997, just like the Mega Man cartoon. It contains 40 episodes, and it first aired September 7th of 1994. Overall, it has a 6.2 out of 2,692 uh, rating. Which that's that's about accurate. It's it's corny, but it's enjoyable for what it's worth. It's you know, uh, I think viewers are sort of underselling it per se. I'd probably at least give it like a six and a half. I mean, but you know, now I'm splitting hairs. I mean, I feel like I could have sworn this would have had better reviewers since the popularity of this uh, when it came out as kids. I remember it being everywhere. Uh, I mean, in this show, I actually coined the phrase "jossum" because of the giant. You know, mouse that the uh, sharks, the anthrop, well, not anthropomorphic, the uh, <laughs> that the giant sharks have in the uh, television series. It ran for three seasons. It was produced by Deke uh, Productions and Bobot Entertainment. It was originally a part of Bobot's Amazing Adventure programming block before settling on ABC for the final season. The show, ultimately similar to, of course, Ninja Turtles, spawned a line of action figures released by Mattel in 1996. The, uh, I just saw the ones that actually go on your hand that are kind of like, you know, a little hand puppet. I, they go for anywhere between $150 to $300. It's, it's insane for a piece of rubber slash plastic on your hand. Super cool. So keeping a lookout for those if you guys see them at antique or thrift stores. They go for a lot of money now. And in 1996, apparently the Sharks were paired with the uh, Dino Avengers uh, show retitled Dino Avengers featuring Street Sharks. I do not recall that exact uh, collaboration However, uh, you know, I do, uh, side salad, <laughs> recall the collaboration with the Power Rangers in the live-action Ninja Turtles Next Mutation TV show, 
sure it was bad, but it was, you know, our bad. And the Next Mutation TV show only ran for two seasons. I picked up both. I watched them. And, yeah, it was definitely not the best. But, you know, shout out to Venus de Milo, the female turtle on the uh, television show, as well as the Power Ranger, Jason David Frank, who was a flawless Power Ranger. And, you know, you will be surely missed. You will be surely missed, my brother. All right, back to the matter at hand. So the plot goes, Professor Docton, Docton, Dr. Robert Bolton and his partner, Dr. Lex Lutheranism, his, his name's just Dr. Luther. I just decided to say Lex Lutheranism because I thought it was funny. So, you know, superhuman villains slash religious reference. Yeah, stupid. Okay, moving on. Dr. Luther paradigm creates a gene slammer machine is what it's called. I don't know if it's slammer in reference to pogs, which maybe perhaps it is. And I've seen a resurgence of those as well, which is incredible to me. Uh, capable of changing aquatic animals into anthropomorphic hybrids, combining deoxyribonucleic acid. Yes, I decided to articulate DNA <laughs> in an attempt to prevent Luther Paradigm from using the machine for uh, his own personal gain. Dr. Bolton transforms to an unseen monstrosity, which still hasn't been revealed to me yet in the show. I'm only on episode, I think, three now, uh, and he escapes. Later, Paradigm gives Bolton's four sons, John, Bobby, Coop, and Clint, four different shark features uh, characteristics. When Paradigm captures the uh, their friend Ben's, uh, the name of a particular character, not the uh, Radiohead album, shout out to Radiohead, <laughs> the street sharks rescue him. And the battle causes Paradigm to be combined with Piranha DNA, nicknamed Piranoid. Or I, I, it's weird how they kind of pronounced it and the, weird that it, the way that it's spelled. Yeah, sure, he has piranha teeth, but he looks like, a, I don't know, a homer because it's like super bald and then the coloring of the skin with piranha teeth. But Dr. Paranoid, Piranoid, whatever. The now-mutated doctor creates mutants to destroy the street sharks, meanwhile persuading inhabitants of Metropolis... Uh, fusion city to imprison them basically uh turning the locals against the heroes and the sharks power throughout the three uh seasons they manage to obtain small uh some all excuse me some allies uh rocks the notorious uh excuse me rocks being one and the, the notorious moby lick which is basically an orca with a giant tongue and oh man i, I saw the toy at an antique store i might have to just go get it it's pretty badass uh and el sordo as well as uh, Manta Man. Tangent to the sort of Dino Avenger, not Avengers, Avengers, a group of alien dinosaurs allied with the sharks against the Raptor Gang, which I don't remember any of this actually happening, but I'm actually looking forward to seeing what happens. I do recall Dinosaurs for Hire, which was a really cool uh, run and gun, kind of like Contra, but with a little more platforming on a Sega Genesis. Super cool game. Dr. Paradigm, <clears throat> of course, uh, teams up with the raptors to you know essentially go after the sharks to uh or no excuse me he tries to get the raptor dna to improve his own uh dna strain but the old reptilian fish villain classic 90 1990s cartoon right the sharks track him or excuse me trick him with iguana dna which ensues a different nickname instead of dr paranoid he's now known as uh dr iguanazoid so yeah how clever whatever not clever at all. I'm clearly being sarcastic. Uh, he works with the Raptors thereafter where they claim uh, to reward him by correcting the DNA mistake. Ultimately, in the end, Paradigm is captured and imprisoned while the Raptors uh, leave Earth. The Dino Avengers uh, later had their own 
a series called Extreme Dinosaurs. The Street Sharks ended May 18th of 1997. Excuse me, let me get a sip. Ah, some Dr. Pepper. There were at-home VHS tapes with various three episodes each, not really in canon of one another. There was just random three episodes kind of thrown together. And later, Mill Creek Entertainment, with the likes of uh, the property Bewitched and A Dream of Genie DVDs, uh, completed their own series set in 2013, uh, February 19th. Yes, February 19th of 2013. That just sounded weird the way that I said it. So <clears throat> the release then is actually now discontinued and out of print. The same company, uh, June 16th of 2018, re-released the series DVD. And then on December 23 or December 23rd, 2021, last year, almost a year ago now, Discotech Media announced a uh, SD Blu-ray release to, re- to release and end of March 2022. That was the company's first release of a, a Western animated series not based on a video game, which is pretty phenomenal. Pretty pretty cool. And I don't think it's very expensive either. I think I've seen it on eBay for maybe like 40 bucks. Uh, halfway through the series in 1996, Archie Comics released a short-lived comic book series based on the TV show, publishing three issues of the miniseries, which the show was based. The toys that were uh, revealed, you know, or made by Mattel were fucking badass. They, they were so cool looking. They, they ran through the longevity of the show and then they fell off, but there is a resurgence now of the toy line and has seen, I have seen them at Walmart. So if you want to recollect, now would be the time. Uh, in the wild at antique stores, these still typically go for anywhere between 25, maybe an up, sometimes a little less depending on the vendor. They're well-crafted pieces of nostalgic uh, plastic and rubber. Man, they're so, so cool looking. Overall, the show was good in its own right. Corny one-liners and totally 90s with really bad intro music, as you heard, and then just bizarre uh, guitar riffs here and there. You're like, what the heck? Yet, like, Steve Vai just showed up and decided to do a solo and leave. (laughs) Like the animated Mighty Ducks show, similar to this. Uh, It was all thanks to... You know who? The Ninja Turtles, man. Come on. I feel other companies tried to create a creature feature mascot for kids. And in most cases, it worked. And I'm glad that they did because, you know, it was a big part of my childhood. I'm not hating by any sense of the word. The show and the toys were representative of the time. And I'm glad that they brought it back for kids to experience, you know, for the next generation to come. I am going to change records now because this is pretty much done. All right, let's move quick. Okay, speaking of toys, like I said, I'm going to talk TMNT toys. Ooh, Stanley Turrenty, man. Oh, so good. The line of toys I'm talking, you know, is the uh, Mirage Playmates toys that came out from 1988, 1989. That's pretty much when they debuted, you know, but they definitely made some after the fact, obviously. Uh, The toys being based off the Mirage comics. And in my catalog that I personally own, I will discuss what I've picked up and that I, I currently have within my collection. And I'll give you a little, uh, you know, basis upon those particular characters as well. So loose, I have both models of the Usagi Ujimbo uh, martial arts rabbit, who is an ally to the uh, Ninja Turtles. Uh, the basic one is worth around $10. And the space one that they made with accessories is worth around 18 according to eBay. 
I have Genghis Frog, one of the uh, four punk frogs, with some accessories, uh, worth about $10 incomplete. I have Panda Khan, who is essentially an accomplice to Yusagi Ujimbo, who I guess would technically also be an ally to the turtles as well. Uh, no accessories, worth about $10 according to eBay. Slash, not all accessories included, worth about $15. Uh, Raphael in space, no accessories except for the helmet, uh, worth 12. Super Surf and Mikey with the surfboard, worth around 15. Hose him down, Donnie. I just love that name. That just sounds super cool. I want to say I have the axe for him. I'm not sure. I know I have the boots, the jacket, and the hat. Uh, no accessories is what I labeled it as, uh, $10. Uh, I just picked up the Foot Clan the other day. Uh, in the event that I picked up my buddy um, two Sega Genesis uh, games to give to him for Christmas. And, I, yeah, I saw Foot Clan in one of their uh, glass cabinets at the antique store, and I was like, yeah, I'm getting that. I've been eyeing it for a while. Uh, with no accessories, it's worth about $20 loose. Uh, I paid, I think, 16 for them, so yay, I made $4, whatever. <laughs> I also own the original four with their accessories, and they are loose, on average for about $10 each on eBay. So I did the math. Currently I have about $160 worth of plastic. And as I said before, I'm not boasting. I just wanted to get you guys an idea of where you guys can stand if you decide to collect. Uh, it's cool to think that a majority of these items that I did purchase in States and I got them at swap meets, yard sales, antique stores, offer up, whatever, whether I was here in California or Florida, you know, I paid $10 or less, or sometimes in some cases, like $5 or less per item. Uh, and that's currently what I have in regards to that set line of Ninja Turtle toys. I have others from different brand names, but I was trying to strictly just stick with the uh, Playmates for this particular episode. Now, a little history of each character. Yusagi Ujimbo is technically inaccurately named for the cartoon series. His real name is Miyamoto Yusagi. And appears in two episodes, self-titled uh, his name, Usagi Ujimbo, uh, that episode, and Usagi Come Home. The action figure released were the only two models, which I have, which is pretty cool that I, I guess I quote-unquote have a complete set of Usagi Ujimbo toys. Uh, anyway, moving on to the next one, as I said before, Genghis Frog, a member of one of the four punk frogs in the show that were mutated and trained by Shredder. Who named, uh, excuse me, Shredder named his frogs after his would-be heroes, which are technically villains, uh, as world conquerors. Uh, unlike Splinter, Hamato Yoshi is Splinter's real name. Oroku Saki is uh, Shredder's real name, by the way, for those of you that don't know. Now you know. Who named uh, them after Renaissance artist Splinter did, which we all know. Genghis' first uh, appearance was in the Invasion of the Punk Frogs. How original of a title for the 1987 animated series, right? Uh, moving on to the next character that I have. Uh, moving on to Panda Khan, or Li Yang. Uh, this is an elusive ally, and to the turtles, amazingly, uh, you know, he and Usagi, or Usagi, however you want to pronounce it, I'm splitting hairs here, according to the comics appearance, have dated very early on within the series, but there isn't really much knowledge of Li Yang or Panda Khan, you know, that's another an astonishing fact that I can't find any other information on this character. Uh, the involvement with the turtles is very limited outside of the well-known appearance in the toy line. 
that's all I got for you on that set character. If anybody has any of that information about PandaCon, please reach out. Or by all means, we can make you a guest on this show. Why do I say we? What am I, fucking Schmeagel from Lord of the Rings? No. Um, t- email me if you find anything on PandaCon. <laughs> oh, man. So for the most part, a fan favorite would be considered Slash, which I also own, or the Fifth Turtle. This is a pretty cool uh, history here that I, uh, I'm about to unfold for you guys. Uh, with with the likes of Metalhead, I'd also say he's perhaps either the fifth or the sixth turtle, in my opinion, as well. Slash first appeared in the Archie comics in number 23, titled Search and Destroy. <clears throat> Shout out to Metallica. Well, that's probably Seek and Destroy. Whatever. Same thing, essentially. <clears throat> as a snapping turtle alien species, he lived in... A- on a tropical planet destroyed by alien invaders. How original, once again, but whatever. We, we still love it. 80s, 90s nostalgia, right? According to the comic, Slash died when he refused to leave Maligna's home, which was uh, crashing towards the sun in order to make... He stayed there because he wanted to make sure Maligna and Noel, set villains here, didn't escape. <laughs> the Turtles and Splinter had a funeral for him, which is pretty cool, and honored Slash as the fifth turtle. In the Sunset Memorial Ceremony in the comic. I recall the weapon that he had was like a wavy katana in the video game. Uh, He had a predominant... That was his predominant weapon that I recall. Uh, Because I remember him from the Turtles in Time arcade game. Well, not... No, he was in the uh, Super Nintendo version. Yes, he was in the Super Nintendo version. The prehistoric uh, level, 65 million BC. He was the uh, boss on that level. However, fun fact, in the actual arcade release, the boss end of that particular level is Cement Man, prehistoric Turtlesaurus. In the arcade, it's Cement Man. The home console, it's Slash. I don't know why they changed it, but still cool. In the animated series, he's known as uh, Blob Man, Cement Man, the character, apparently. It's kind of a convoluted mess, yeah, I know, between character names and so forth, but I digress. The only comic that I own of the Turtles is the Archie comic release of the live-action first film by Blue Harvest. I think I paid about $2 for it at an antique store, and it goes for now on eBay anywhere between 20 to 30 I have it in a glass case uh, up on the wall, and I honestly haven't read it. <laughs> Probably because I already know the film. For all I know, it could be different than the film. I'm not sure. Perhaps one day I'll read it, but for now, it's in a case, and I'm leaving it alone. You know... <clears throat> The last toy that I picked up was the Foot Clan, the 1988 Playmates uh, toy. Uh, you know, it's the Foot Clan, the history is it's a fictional Japanese ninja originally designed as a parody of the criminal ninja clan, the Hand, in the Marvel Comics Daredevil. I had no idea that it was a parody, and it works. It's fucking cool. They practice ninjutsu, for those of you that probably already know that, to take down uh, heroes in a half shell. <laughs> but are always easily thwarted by the four brothers in green. The logo itself is symbolized as a right foot to justify their crime syndicate. You know, believing that they're doing the right thing. It's, it's just ridiculous. But I mean, obviously they're robots, you know, created by a shredder and in, in the movie, they're live action humans, but anywho, in the games, uh, they were color variants, you know, yellow, blue, red, green, pink. They all had different, uh, types of weapons and different defense, uh, mechanisms in regards to trying to take down the turtles in the uh, said beat up video game <clears throat> in the animated series they were also robotic and in the movies as i said they were human 
And what's funny is I remember uh, in the first movie, you know, they get slapped by April's purse right before she gets slapped by the said Foot Clan. Uh, Shredder has a message for you. And just slaps her in the subway station. <laughs> Let's just call them Shredder's putties pretty much. You know, once again, shout out to the Power Rangers, man. That's really what they are. They are just Shredder's putties and get on with it. It's a classic enemy for sure. We all love them. And it's a solid toy by Playmate. I'm glad to have all of that I stated within my uh, collection, you know. The turtles are iconic, the toys, everything. All right, moving on. That's chip tunes from uh, Area 88. The UN squadron in the US is what we got. Uh, it's a classic uh, side-scrolling horizontal shooter, but man, that's that's some quality tunes from Capcom right there. Oh, brother. Okay, transition to, as I said before, the eighth episode, and I would like to pay homage to Area 88 with the number eight in it. <laughs> in the US, we got UN Squadron, a 1989 side-scrolling shoot-em-up, or shmup as I like to call them, created by Capcom for the CPS Arcade, then later homeported to the SNES. Released in Japan as Area 88, based on the manga series of the same name, which I actually have not read yet. Uh, the mission is simple. The premise is stop the terrorist group known as Project 4. Yep, that's pretty much the premise right there. I mean, you don't really need much of a story when it comes to a shmup, but it's kind of cool they put some sort of little backstory to it, I guess. Released on the Super Nintendo and Super Famicom September of 1991. It goes with the trend of other Capcom shooters, such as 1942 or 1943, The Battle of Midway, uh, which are vertical shooters. But this one, as I stated, is a horizontal shooter from left to right. Instead of one-hit deaths, uh, there's a really cool uh, mechanic here. There's an energy bar or energy meter that is consumed over the course of sustained uh, damage. This particular trait is uncommon among the genre of arcade shooters, which normally reserve lives. And, you know, it's it's nice instead of the one-hit death kind of thing and then starting the level over or losing your power-ups, you know. Before entering a level, the player can purchase special weapons or added defense in the uh, shop. Money is earned by beating the level and destroying foes. Simple enough. I mean, that's pretty much anticipated, right? Uh, on top of any unused weapon, at the end of the level, it gets converted back to cash for the shop prior to the next level uh, starting which is incredibly handy and convenient. And, you know, games nowadays, well, there aren't really too many crazy new shooters out there, but that's a great mechanic to, you know, employ to said game. There are three players to choose from, Shin Kazama, Mickey Simon, and Greg Gates, flying specific planes in the arcade, each with different attributes within the arcade version, as I said. Although on the Super Nintendo, each pilot has a range of planes. You start out with $3,000 for purchases and a basic F-8 Crusader. Plus, you can buy other aircraft and weapons as you progress. Upon the home release, the illustration of the poster was created by illustrator Mark Erickson, who did covers for other Capcom games. Get this. Mega Man 2, which, as I said before, arguably the best within the NES original six titles among fans, and Strider, 
which also had an arcade version as well as a home port on the uh, Sega Genesis. It's a side-scroller uh, action platformer. It, it's cool. Uh, the reception of the game went well, and the Game Machine magazine listed UN Squadron as being the sixth most successful table arcade unit of that month. In the States, it was a hit as well, becoming the top-grossing software on the replay arcade charts. In February of 1990, the Japanese home release on the Super Famicom scored 28 out of 40, and in gaming publication weekly, uh, Famitsu. Along with Entertainment Weekly in the States, it gave the uh, SNES version an A, picking the game as number 12, or the 12th greatest game of 1991. That's, that's a pretty fair, uh, that's, that's a great score. I, 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 I agree with that stamp, if I had a little stamp, but I don't. Ah, oh, some kicking ass tunes, man. All right. To me, that sounds like a low score. Uh, as far as it being number 12, I mean, it is, I approve, but I feel like it deserves more. It, it was a different b- breed of reviewers uh, than compared to now, as far as, you know, uh, critics, as far as video games go back then. But on the other hand, Super Gamer gave it an overall 93%, stating it was graphically impressive. It featured varied levels, aircraft choices, and plenty of power-ups and the atmospheric sound. Recommended favorite uh, shoot-em-up for fans. Which, that, yeah, I I can get on board with that. Enough said, moving on. Overall, IGN ranked it at number 37 on its top 100 Super NES games list. And I'd say that that's fair, considering the NTSC, uh, North American release of the Super Nintendo Games Library, there are 17, 717 games total. As I said, 37 out of 717 is pretty good. If you want to get more technical, then the Japanese library is 1448, double the American release of uh, Super Nintendo games. So number 37 is a pretty solid spot. Furthermore, uh, 2018 complex uh, reviewers listed Airy 88 as number 23, the best Super Nintendo game of all time, labeling it the best shooter on the SNES. Now, I definitely agree with that. Uh, in addition to 1985, uh, its total was rated at 63 on their uh, top 100 uh, total magazine, excuse me, not total serial. <laughs> yeah, the serial loves playing video games, sure. So overall, its reception went pretty well. And after the years and the numbers uh, have listed have changed, in spite of all that, I, I agree. It, it being the best on the uh, Super Nintendo. There are definitely some fun shooters on the Super Nintendo, like Sprig Empowered. It's a horizontal uh, shmup in the likes of uh, kind of like Gundam, Mechs, and all that. I beat that one. That one's... Eh, most shooters are usually about 25, 40 minutes, maybe an hour max. Uh, that one's a Super Famicom release. Uh, Darius Twin. There's a lot of Darius games uh, on Sega Saturn, in the arcade, and whatnot. Darius Twin on uh, Super Nintendo. I wouldn't have been able to beat it without save states. Yeah, I cheated, but I beat it. It's a two-player shmup, horizontal shooter. It's glorious. It's it's a fun game made by uh, Mattel, actually. Super Earth Defense Force. That's another good one. I got stuck. I Yeah, the last boss... Ooh, it's a doozy. I might have to play it. Maybe I'll talk about it someday. And then Axelay has a mode seven, um, similar to that of like parallax scrolling. Like you're scrolling upward, but the, sh- uh, the screen like moves with you. You kind of have to see it to believe it. It's, it's a beautiful game to look at, but it's, it can be pretty challenging. Axelay, it's a good shooter. 
Uh, I'd even throw in Phalanx uh, with its weird iconic box art with a man playing a banjo in a rocking chair. An old man who looks like ZZ Top or something playing a banjo in a rocking chair is a fucking shooter on Super Nintendo. Go look it up. Phalanx. P-H-A-L-A-N-X. Regardless, uh, it's an extremely well-tailored game. Uh, Area 88 or UN Squadron to the Super Nintendo's capabilities, limitations, sound chips, etc., sprite work, all that. Go play any which way you can, and loose, according to price charting, is still reasonable, roughly about $30 or less. So you won't break the bank. It is, it's a good, it's a good game. And, however, I feel that the Genesis and the TurboGrafx-16 definitely have better shooters in regards to more uh, variety of shooters and just well better made shooters that don't have any slowdown maybe better music or better weapons variety or uh, level variety i always felt the super nintendo was good for platformers and rpgs in my opinion but moving on speaking of rpgs i'll be brief on this one since i got other topics to talk about child of light i just purchased this on uh, my switch i've been playing this uh for the past day or two and you know, they had a deal this weekend on the Switch library. It was uh, 75% off, so I paid a little over $4 for it. The artwork is that of something like a Tim Burton cartoon meets Dr. Seuss, in my opinion, in relevance to the rhyme scheme dialogue that every NPC that you talk to uh, rhymes. And including the protagonist, uh, she also rhymes when they speak, you know, as the story progresses. It is an action platforming RPG from Ubisoft, the team that brought you Rayman and the Rabbids games. Developed July of 2014 for previous gen consoles, the PS Vita, uh, what, Xbox 360, PS3, Wii U, PC, all those. Uh, come four years later, it was re released on the Nintendo Switch October 11 of 2018. The announcement of this release teased a sequel, and versions were released uh, for these other consoles that flopped as well <laughs> the Amazon Luna and the Google Stadia that nobody talks about in October of 2021. It does feature puzzle elements as well. In order to progress the level, you must open a door in some regard using your Firefly companion uh, in some cases. I'll get to that momentarily. The game takes place in a fictional world called Lemuria. Aurora, a princess, wakes up here and must thwart evil... uh, Of course, it's... uh, Yeah. (laughs) And move on in order to return to the real world. She must beat the evil of Lemuria in order to uh, move on to the real world since she is unconscious in this particular realm and unable to wake up for her father. She wakes up in Lemuria from a dying uh, disease or dying a mysterious illness, and she must bring back the sun, moon, and the stars that are being held by the Queen of the Night in order to return home. It has received critical acclaim with the visuals and praise for its 2.5D look. It it is rather 2.5D, and I, I just... I like how those older games look. The gameplay mechanics... And presentation as well as original story are just, it's great. The mechanics feature an action time battle system found similar to Final Fantasy uh, installments as well as the Grandia series. Personally, the only Final Fantasy that I've beaten was Final Fantasy Adventure on Game Boy, which is actually the first Mana series uh, game. It was uh, branded as Final Fantasy in order to sell more due to the game's rising popularity. Let me switch sides of my record.
Oh, it took a little longer than I anticipated. Uh, I also have played and damn near beaten Final Fantasy 2, a.k.a. 4, on Super Nintendo. I say 4 because it is technically the fourth installment since we did not get 2 or 3 over here in North America like Japan did. <clears throat> I do have Grandia 2 for the Dreamcast and have yet to play it. I do with great anticipation want to know after playing this game if it holds up in regards to the gameplay mechanics. Uh, back to Child of Light. The player can uh, control up to two characters during battle and swap these two characters with waiting players. Up to three enemies can appear during the battle with your two players being the protagonists and them being the villains. If the pl player approaches an enemy from behind, which I highly suggest, uh, the battle becomes a surprise strike giving the player an advantage, basically speeding up the grind of experience points and leveling. And by no means is grinding a chore in this game, it's actually rather enjoyable. Uh, now counteract that with an ambush from the enemy approaches you from behind, making it a little more difficult. It's the same thing, just reversed. Igniculus, uh, the Firefly character, as I said before, is a game mechanic character, a little blue orb, uh, who you can use freely to... Uh, <clears throat> help you along your way to blind the enemy or heal you if need be if you're uh, low on health their turn to attack you may be able to use him to blind that particular character so they can't essentially use their uh, casted attack or defend or magic against you you can interrupt that process picture the attack or the defend mechanic as a race to the finish this is how I like to look at it Whoever gets there first gets to attack and prevents the other person from attacking. It's a really unique and easy uh, comprehension to understand how to utilize this mechanic. The game overall has a Metacritic score of 83 out of 100 on the Switch. It has a consistent positive reviews overall from previous generation consoles, mostly 8 or 9s out of 10. Well deserved for certain, or uh, yes, well deserved for um, IGN. Uh, characteristics stated its combat system is second to none the only critique negatively was that its dialogue uh, seemed a little just faulty because of the rhyming scheme which I didn't mind it did have cat in the hat vibes but the message is there <clears throat> the point gets across whether they're rhyming or not as I've always said as long as the game is fun I don't care what it looks like graphically or the story all that much and make it under 20 hours for an RPG and I'm good I, I got to move on, you know? If the mechanics are there, I will gladly purchase something like that. Overall, a dark and yet lighthearted and not too difficult of an RPG to get into. It, it also has a PC port. And guess what? Another plus is that there's no random encounters at all. You can fight whoever, whenever you want. So go play it any which way you can. <clears throat> all right. Let's change up the gears a little bit. Let's change the groove. I'm going to talk about Offspring's Ignition, the second album, released October 16, 1992 on Epitaph Records. The success of the band would continue to grow upon the release of their third album, Smash, in 1994. It is the first and only album to include photos of each band member. The album was recorded in June of 1992 at West Beach Recorders, or Records, excuse me, in Hollywood. It is 37 minutes and 24 seconds in length. It was certified gold June, no, I'm sorry, January 22nd of 1996, two years after uh, the album Smash came out, and it has sold over 1 million copies worldwide. For the 20th anniversary 2012, The Offspring played this album in its entirety for selected venues while they were touring. 
They recorded the sixth track from the album, Dirty Magic, for their ninth album, Days Go By, released 20 years later. Epitaph's label, ran by Bre- uh, Bad Religion's guitarist Brett Gurowitz, felt the offspring were not <clears throat> pronounced enough at the time for his label, but their EP Baghdad that they made uh, convinced him otherwise to give them a shot. Both the EP and Ignition were recorded in one month, March of 89 for Baghdad and February of 91 for Ignition. Upon release, Ignition did not chart the Billboard 200, however gathered a small success of followers in the SoCal area of Los Angeles and San Diego. In 1985, Kick'em When He's Down received airplay on the radio, technically a single at the time, a couple years after its release. The album since, by fans, has received... received generally favorable reviews from fans and is considered to be one of the best albums within their library. In October of 2011, the album was ranked number two between Alice in Chains' Dirt and Bad Religion's Generator. Guitar World's Magazine Top 10 list of guitar albums of 1992. My top songs from the album are Session. It's a bang-out first track, just hard in your face. The song's... It's incredible. Solid out the gate. Just skate, surf punk revival. Track two, uh, We Are One, follows is upbeat. It's also awesome. The third one is Kick Him When He's Down, also a great song. Take It Like a Man is in your face. I mean, who am I kidding? The rest of the album rocks too. Get It Right, Dirty Magic, Hypodermic, uh, Burn It Up, No Hero, LEPD, Nothing From Something, and Forever In A Day. The offspring are Dexter Holland, guitar and vocals, Noodles, yep, De Niro's character from Once Upon a Time in America is back. No, I'm just kidding, but Noodles is his name, uh, the guitarist. And uh, Greg Kay on bass and Ron Welty on drums. When it comes to the offspring, you know what you're getting into. That revitalized, just fresh skate surf punk vibe in a time capsule that is basically just timeless. Uh, I mention this album because I don't hear many people talk about it. Mostly you hear Smash, Americana, uh, Ixney on the Ombre, which is also a really good one that, you know. So get out there, you know, grab your vans, grab some uh, trunks and a board and go shred. Sticking with 90s vibe, 90s rock, and a second album as well, uh, Weezer's Pinkerton. Their second album released September 24th, 1996. Same principle here. Uh, here. I feel that I mentioned this album uh, within their catalog because not many conversations of music where I feel that this uh, album of Weezer gets mentioned. Plus, I reminded myself of it uh, earlier speaking to a buddy of mine and his girl's last name is Pinkerton. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to talk about that album on this episode. This album released on DGC Records. The original plan uh, for Rivers Cuomo was for a rock opera follow-up entitled Songs from the Black Hole. Hear me out. So I think Queen, Green Day, and Pink Floyd definitely have the rock opera category covered. So please leave that to them, Rivers. Nothing personal. Your music is cool in its own right, but stick to your garage rock pop punk sound, please. And also, next time, try not to steal the uh, adolescent song, uh, Kids from the Black Hole. Shout out to the adolescents. So please and thank you. Pressing on with Rivers Cuomo and Weezer's Pinkerton. The album was recorded between Cuomo's uh, terms at Harvard University, where he wrote most of the songs. I sense a Milo Ackerman on our hands from The Descendants, a college boy songwriter. Shout out to uh, The Descendants. The album is 34 minutes and 36 seconds in length. 
there were three known singles, El Scorcho, The Good Life, and Pink Triangle. Weezer's self-produced uh, album, they self-produced this uh, album to better capture that live sound. Uh, his lyrical tone expresses uh, bouts of loneliness, disillusionment with the rock lifestyle as well. The album is named after Giacomo Puccini's 1904 opera, uh, Madame Butterfly. That was my terrible Italian accent, which happens to be their last track of the album. Actually, the last track is uh, just Butterfly. Uh, who Cuomo's describes the play as an asshole American sailor similar to a touring rock star. Sure, they're uncanny of one another. Why not? The album debuted at number 19 on the U.S. Billboard 200, although it failed to meet sales expectations and received mixed reviews from Rolling Stones magazine. Readers of the magazine voted it third worst album of 1996. Embarrassed, Cuomo's returned to more traditional garage rock pop songwriting and less personal for the subsequent Green album. Later years, it has been reassessed and achieved notorious acclaim. It was certified platinum in 2016, and it was also the last album to uh, feature bassist Matt Sharp. Shortly after release, uh, they toured the album with songs from the previous uh, Blue album as well. Uh, Sharp leaves the album, and then they go on a hiatus. During this time, the album amasses its cult following including bands like Jimmy Eat World, Saves the Day, and Motion City Soundtrack has stated them as an influence, which is cool. I, I can, yeah, that's cool. Surprised Cuomo, he has a comeback with the follow-up 2001 Green Album as the anti-Pinkerton with album art and Squeaker King uh, production comparative to his previous uh, offset, since he was ashamed from the setback from the previous album. In my opinion, Tired of Sex, the opening track is just brilliant. What a great song title. And the other nine songs are great in their own right as well. Personally, I still feel that Blue is their best album, followed by uh, this one and then Green. And then the rest after that were just different. It, it's not it's not my cup of tea. Um, then the core garage-related emo alternative rock pop punk feel. Uh, regardless, this one definitely deserves its recognition. That's why I mentioned it. So give it an earshot and enjoy your squeaky clean college rock. All right. I would also like to plug my buddy uh, Austin, his book, uh, Blood of the Scion. Uh, I mean, if you guys enjoy uh, Underworld meets Blade meets the action and violence of American Psycho, go read it. It's only like 360 pages. It's shortly longer than an average novella. It's it's a really quick and easy read. The uh, print itself is rather large. And uh, the little excerpt that he has about himself at the end is very touching as well for those of uh, us who know him. But uh, yes... Blood of the Scion by Austin James. It's on Amazon. I can give you guys a link if need be. Go go check it out. Uh, as always, thank you for the uh, support and love you guys give me, friends and family, and uh, the following that I have now. And I'm glad you guys like talking music, movies, video games, toys, and you know all this stuff like I do. So if you want to reach me, it's letz.surf.88 at gmail.com or shazz.boxx at 88 hotmail.com so by all means we can talk quizzes questions anything you guys want to bring up uh to me via email and i'll do it put all in the show and then we can always uh have guests on here as well so once again thank you for the support good night love you guys thank you <laughs>